0: I don't know that i would have been as successful with the business or if it even would have lasted if i didn't have someone that was able to see the value in what i was doing for me it was just kind of a side project when i started out and she was like dude this is a golden idea at a golden time let's take it and run with it and that's what in fact we did
1: Welcome back, everybody, to episode 68. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest. But before I do that, I want to remind you to make sure you're inside of our free Facebook community. That's where I'm sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. It's also where the vote happens every month for the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. So definitely head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook to join the group. Today's guest is Luke Story. Luke is a former Hollywood celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style, a seven-figure per-year business that is known industry-wide as the world's leading school for stylists. In recent years, Luke has been using himself as a human research lab, exploring a broad and sometimes extreme variety of measures to obtain optimal health, performance, and well-being. This includes surviving being injected with poisonous Amazonian frog venom to enduring weeks of neurofeedback meditation in an isolation chamber. See, Luke has scoured the earth for the most cutting edge as well as ancient technologies of healing and personal transformation. Luke has tenaciously applied the results of his field research and used them to not only completely transform his own life, but also that of others through speaking engagements, his hit podcast, The Lifestylist, and more. Luke, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm excited to have you here.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really impressed with your ability to rattle off the intro live. It's my dream as a podcaster to someday learn how to do that because I labor over those intros sometimes for like an hour and a half to do what you just did. So
1: (laughs) Well, I'll give you my secret. I sometimes end up re-recording them after the interview.
0: (laughs) I think that one was flawless. You probably don't have to.
1: (laughs) I love it. Also, Luke, I definitely want to touch a little bit on your human research lab thing but definitely want to spend the most of our time today talking about your your experience in business. So first, just set the stage for us. What was life like for you growing up and what beliefs about money and success were instilled in you?
0: It's really interesting because I've looked at the core beliefs I have around money, financial security, abundance, and things like that quite a lot recently because I'm feeling as though I've hit sort of a ceiling or plateau on my own potential and I want to expand much further beyond that. I recently interviewed someone on my show named Lacey Phillips who has a really great online program called To Be Magnetic and uh, she's a manifestation expert. And during my interview with her, we discovered some of those childhood messages that I took on, things that get lodged in your subconscious and then later on in the life uh, kind of come back and haunt you. But interestingly enough, uh, when I was a kid... My dad had a complete, he was very successful. He set a goal to be a millionaire by the time he was 30 and he achieved that, which was, you know, would have been 1968 or something like that, or 72 somewhere. Yeah, maybe 1972. Uh, self-made man, um, not highly educated, but just very determined and saw opportunities when they arose. And did really well for himself, has always been free of debt, has always been very sober financially, um, has not lived beyond his means, is not ostentatious. He's had money and he's not the kind of guy that has to show people he has money. He just is a smart investor and eventually went on to start um, other businesses and got into real estate and did pretty well for himself. And then my mom, although never achieved the financial success that my dad did, was really good at living within her means and always really provided for me despite not having a really high income. was always extremely organized with money, great at budgeting, always balancing her checkbook, knowing exactly how much money was coming in and going out. And so both my parents were very sound in terms of finance. And it's odd because I grew up and up until quite recently was having a really chaotic relationship with money and had a lot of subconscious limitations about my ability to make it and my ability to be financially successful. And I think by some metrics, I have been, but not according to my own standards. So I recently, in the past couple of years, have really been looking at my relationship to money and learning how to be a more responsible steward of wealth and resources and grow up a bit a little later in life than some people do in terms of my maturity around budgeting and just having what I call just kind of a sober financial life, you know, being financially sober, where you don't spend more money than you have, not using debt as a means by which to fulfill your spontaneous immature desires, (laughs) all those sorts of things. So I think what I'm getting at is like my parents both had a really healthy relationship with money and I have not in my life. But one thing that I did, I think, inherit probably from my dad, was the entrepreneurial spirit and was never very good at working for other people and having a job in the classical sense. When I was in high school, my first entrepreneur ventures were selling marijuana to my classmates and peers. And <laughs> that was the first home business that I had, and I was pretty good at it. you know. Of course, then later on, went on to have more legitimate and legal jobs. But um, I really like the idea of just having a vision for something, seeing a need in a market, and then meeting that need through creative means. And luckily now everything I do is on the up and up and completely legal in the state of California. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had the entrepreneurial spirit, but not so much a sense of responsibility and maturity around money. Like I was always good at making it, but not, let me see. I was like good at making it, but a little better at spending it. And so there was a deficit for most of my adult life, really up until a couple of years ago of finally getting out of credit card debt and making a firm resolve to never allow that to happen again and to just have a little more restraint and um, a little more awareness and clarity around finance. But that's kind of my background is two parents that I think I learned from, but um, probably a bit later in life.
1: There's so much in what you said there and I love the way you described that as being financially sober. You know I think that it's so easy especially when you are making good money to bury your head in the sand and just spend kind of with a blindfold on and and not really look at what's really going on with your financial life because it's easier to just ignore it and cross your fingers and hope it's going to work out okay. So yeah.
0: Totally. It's you know it's a funny thing in that regard because it's like As I started about 22 years ago to get into spirituality, metaphysics, et cetera, I got sober, like physically sober when I was 26 years old and started to really pursue my spiritual life and develop a relationship with a higher power and meditate and all these sort of things. And I really um, developed a faith because I had been in such a dark place for so much of my life and then had had this really transformative experience. And it became clear to me that there was some intelligent design behind the universe. And that if I aligned myself to that, I would be taken care of and I'd be self insecure. And so I would be secure and safe. And so I kind of just put all my faith in God, so to speak. And, and as a result became very irresponsible with money because like you said, I just thought, well, I'll just keep making more. And as long as I show up and do the work, it's not like I ever thought, oh, I'm just going to sit on my ass and eat Cheetos and watch soap operas and, and like I don't know where soap operas came in, but I'm thinking of like the laziest thing one can do or cartoons, maybe let's say, you know, (laughs) sit around eating haagen on the couch all day with the curtains closed, watching cartoons or playing video games and thinking God is going to send me money. I never had that, but it was just like, whatever I'm being taken care of. I'm being protected. I have this, this spiritual life and I'm being provided for. And as long as I do my part, I'll be met with equal um, fortune. And, I miss the other part of it, that money is a currency and that it needs to be valued as such and, and used responsibly. So you need to know what's coming out and what's coming in. So that was another another lesson. And that also is that, yeah, there is a, a loving power in the universe that takes care of us, but we have to do our part as well. It's not like you can be a spoiled kid and allow a higher power or even you know a spouse or friends or family, parents, take care of you. There's a spiritual lesson that we all have to learn. And that is we have to earn our keep and and be wise about it. And then and apply the principle of tiding. Once you've assumed that responsibility for your financial life, then it's time to give back. And that's a, a cycle of currency, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think as as humans, I talk about this a lot on the show. You know, we have this fundamental need for contribution. And so it's really important that we, for lack of a better phrase, get our shit together so that we actually can turn around and give back and, and help. So you touched briefly on, you know, the fact that you did go through a bit of a dark period in your life before finding success in business. Could you touch on that quickly and then what was it that turned it all around for you and took you on this path to being this celebrity stylist and eventually starting the school of style?
0: Yes, I sure can. I've, I've to-
1: No, it's a long question. <laughs> no,
0: it's great. I've told the story a few times and it's always fun to tell because it has a happy ending so far. You know, there's a period of darkness and then there's the Phoenix rising period and, you know, it is quite an arc of a story. To put it simply, and I'm getting a little better at refining the story um, in the context of how long someone's show is and what the show is really about, as a kid, like many of us, I experienced a lot of trauma and my reaction to that trauma was to self-medicate and to find ways to ease the discomfort that I was feeling as a result of some of my experiences. I felt really uncomfortable in my skin and had a very difficult time playing with others and being in school and being kind of a normal, well-behaved, well-adjusted kid, I just had a lot of behavioral problems, mental and emotional issues, and physical issues, and all sorts of things. And that kind of culminated by dropping out of high school the day I turned 18, which is by the way, the best day of my life, <laughs> October 29th, 1988, <laughs> so I was finally legally not required to go to the prison known as high school. And then shortly after I moved to Hollywood and started playing in bands and got a fake ID and I had a great time. I was just doing tons of drugs with reckless abandon. I had very little responsibility. My bills are really low. I think my rent was like $300 a month to live in a living room with these two girls that I'd met. And, uh, you know, I was just hanging out with rock stars and just living the dream and partying and it was super fun. But aside from the fun, there was an increasing dependency on drugs and uh, the frequency of the drug abuse. Was getting um, intensifying over time, and then kind of the party atmosphere that was fun, and being nineteen and being in Hollywood is like you're twenty-four, still in Hollywood, haven't gone anywhere, and you know the hours I was keeping were the hours of a vampire, and things were just getting really dark and depressing, and it was getting more difficult to suppress the early childhood experiences that I had experienced that were painful, and now that pain was being compounded by the self-destructive lifestyle that I was living, and. I was creating more shameful and more traumatic experiences for myself due to my environment and the lifestyle that I was living. And then that all started to get darker and darker, sort of like when you wake up on a sunny day and you know, throughout the day, the clouds start rolling in. And the next thing you know, it's kind of getting to be dusk and it's very cloudy and it's stormy and cold. And that happy feeling you had earlier in the day when it was sunny and bright and the air was clean, uh, that's kind of going away. And you know, over the course of six or so years living in Hollywood, or I guess it was about seven years, 19 to 26, you know, the fun times just started fading away and it got really dark and depressing. And I had the sense that I probably wouldn't be around very long if I continued to live in the ways I was living. And um, and I knew that for a while, but I also knew that if I made a decision to turn my life around, that I was really going to have to commit to it wholeheartedly. There wasn't, The idea that oh you know I'll just go out and have a couple beers on the weekend or smoke weed here and there and I'll be okay. I had to really come to the point where no, I realize that I have a serious addiction problem and that I have to be completely sober and you know seek medical treatment and and that took a while for me to be able to accept because I could manage and control things for a period of time and then by the time I was twenty six it's just there was very little fun in it anymore and it became quite literally what felt like a death sentence, you know, that I had um, brought upon myself by my behavior and decisions. So I made a decision to put myself um, into a rehab and had assistance, thankfully, to do that. <laughs> because I, wasn't, I wasn't even capable of like getting on a plane and being anywhere at that point. I was pretty much an invalid. So I was given the help that I needed, and you know the timing was right at that point in my life, and it really it stuck, and I, I've never looked back. It's been 22 years now, as of February 15th, and so I got really um, deeply involved in recovery, and then in personal development and spirituality, and um, and as a result of that, actually it's kind of an interesting story, as fate and karma would have it, when I sobered up at 26 which you know, I felt like my life was totally over. Because when you're 26, you're still kind of in that the world revolves around me, immaturity phase, I think, especially I was. My growth was quite stunted. But now looking back, when I meet someone that's 26, they're like a poo butt. I mean, they're like a kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm 48 now. so
1: I'm 27. So
0: yeah, a 27-year-old like, is like a kid to me now, in a sense, with all due respect. But I had so much life ahead of me, in other words. But the first job that I had, or one of the first couple jobs, was working for a fashion stylist named Kikai Mingus, who's the daughter of a famous jazz musician named Charles Mingus, incidentally. And we had been friends, and she had watched me kind of go down the tubes. And when I got sober, she was kind enough to give me a job as her assistant. And she was, by that time, a big-time celebrity stylist. And um, after I was working with her for a couple months, she booked Aerosmith as a client. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So Aerosmith, I mean, it was like Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. I mean, ACD, these were the bands that I grew up listening to and worshipped. And so here I am a few months sober working for Aerosmith. And what's really interesting about that story is they were sober at the time. And they were one of the first, you know, world famous rock bands to come out and say, hey, we're drug addicts and we all went to rehab and we got sober. And they were having a huge comeback as a result, largely uh, because of their sobriety and their newfound success and you know kind of getting their um, second wind as a, as an artist as a band and so getting to spend time with Steven Tyler and having someone that I really admired tell me how cool it was to be sober and how great things were going for them and I was a musician at the time and I was just really I felt validated that I could be someone that didn't do drugs and still be cool and be into rock and roll and have tattoos and live in Hollywood and have fun and date girls and do all those things that I thought I was going to miss out on. And so as a result of that experience, my um, sobriety was highly encouraged. And also I entered into a new industry, which was becoming a fashion stylist, as you said. And I did that for, ended up being for really 17 years all in from the first day to the last day. And then also played music for a number of years while I was also a stylist. So, like at night, I was going and playing gigs and going on tour. And then in the daytime, I was dressing other musicians, essentially that had been more successful than I was. You know, so um, that's kind of how how that that career began. And that was my first. Um, it wasn't really entrepreneurial. It was more like working as an artist. You know, when you're a stylist, you're a freelance artist, and you still go from job to job, and you have higher ups that you're working for and clients that hire you, but you're a freelancer. So there's a bit more freedom in it. And it does have more of an entrepreneurial feel to it because you're building a brand and your success is largely determined on you know how well you market yourself and relationship building and networking and things like that. But that was kind of my first foray into the world of fashion and into the entertainment industry, while at the same time really working on myself on the sidelines and going to India and learning to meditate and practicing yoga and learning every kind of meditation I could find and getting really into health and wellness, biohacking and all of this stuff, which was always just kind of my um, personal life. And then, you know, of course, fast forward to now, which I'm sure we'll get to, has become also my professional life. But that's how, that's how my journey began.
1: So how did your relationship with money evolve as you, know, you, as you were a celebrity stylist and then more specifically as you launched the School of Style?
0: Well, there were a couple of things that happened. One thing is when you're working as an assistant, and I mean, this is going back in the late nineties, you're making $350 a day, which prior to that, the only jobs I had had were some of the the more um, legally challenged <laughs> occupations that I had earlier on. And there were others too that can go without mentioning, but I did a lot of things that were unethical for money in the beginning And then, you know, once I was all above board and legal, making $350 a day was a lot of money for a kid that's 27, 28 years old. And so I started to make really good money, but I still didn't have the part that I was talking about before, with the discipline and the respect for the money. So when you work in Hollywood... Or even in the fashion industry, entertainment industry, it's a very feast or famine sort of um, rhythm to it. And so you, maybe you're making three fifty a day, and you work for a month straight with one day off, and you find yourself with a few thousand dollars in the bank. And so you think you're rich, or at least I did at at that age. And uh, maybe you have fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in your checking account, which is like, oh my god, I'm you know I'm really wealthy, <laughs> is what it seems like. And you know you can have a nicer car and a nicer apartment and travel a bit, but the thing about the freelancing uh, that was challenging for me is it's very difficult to budget because it's really unpredictable. There might be then two weeks where you don't work at all, but you're still spending money like you're making it. And so I think, you know, just as a result of not having a lot of self-discipline during those first 10 years as a stylist, and also because the industry is very volatile and it's, kind of hot and cold and just runs like that. And that's the way it is working in an industry that is um, temperamental like that. And there's so much competition and there's so many variables which determine how much you work and how much you make. Uh, Then there's another side of it that was really challenging. And that is when you work as a freelance stylist, when you get booked on a job, the way that the system is set up is that you purchase all of your wardrobe and wardrobe supplies, et cetera, on your own credit cards. And then you turn in receipts at the end and you get reimbursed. If you're not someone who's really on top of your books and really keeping track of your spending and, you know, say you rack up $25,000 on your credit cards and then you turn in those receipts at the end of a job and then your client cuts you a check for that $25,000, if you're not really awake and aware and make sure that you go pay off those credit cards then with that money what is prone to happen and what used to happen to me quite a bit for a lot of years was that I would feel like I had all this money, but I really didn't. I just was kind of unorganized and sometimes wouldn't pay the credit cards back. And then I'd be sitting on a big chunk of cash and my friends might say, Hey, we're all going to Brazil. You want to go? And do you have, can you afford it? And I'm like, yeah, I can afford it. I have money in the bank, but it's not my money. It belongs to AP Morgan. You know, It's like a line of credit that I now have like fronted on my credit cards. And so it gets very confusing for someone like me that was not great at math and Excel spreadsheets and budgets. And, you know, like you get a report from your bookkeeper and still to this day, I mean, I get these P and L's from my bookkeeper and I'm like, this means nothing to me. I can't even read this. It's just like, I want to see a red number at the bottom or a black number. And I kind of get that, you know, red, bad, black, good. So as a result, I got myself in a lot of debt. And I think my relationship with money in those first years and for, for quite a, a few years was just like, if it feels good, do it, whatever, I'll figure it out later kind of thing. And so there was a lot of hard lessons to learn until the point where I ended up being in credit card debt for years and years and just kind of like blew it off and just whatever, I'll make more. And then I think at some point a few years ago, I added up how much interest I was paying every month on you know my seven credit cards that I'd maxed out or whatever through this Weird industry and also just being irresponsible. And I was paying, I think, $1,000 a month just in interest. I mean, for years on end, paying $12,000, $15,000 a year just credit card interest. And you don't have to be a genius to realize that's probably not smart. You know, eventually I was able to pull that together. But luckily for me, um, when I had been styling for 10 years, this would have been in 2008. I was seeing a bunch of friends of mine do like flipping houses and stuff in LA. There was a big real estate bubble at that time. And so many friends of mine that were making about the same money as me were buying houses in up and coming neighborhoods like Echo Park and Silver Lake and flipping them. And three months, they're making $200,000. And I was like, whoa, I need to get in the real estate game. So I started going to these um, sort of like, learn how to flip houses, get rich quick, boot camps, and things like that. And I would pay a few thousand dollars and go to some Hotel by LAX for the weekend, and you know, learn all about the real estate game. And it was, you know, very alluring. And I'd see them; they'd have the upsells in the back of the room, and everyone would flood the back of the room at the breaks. And I'd be sitting in the room calculating, you know, if every person here paid five thousand dollars, and there's one hundred and fifty people here, I would start doing rough math and going, "These guys are killing it!" Like I'm on the wrong side of the stage here. I need to be teaching something, bringing people in, and giving them valid information. In a short period of time and turn that into a business. And I really liked the model of kind of the crash course rather than going to university. I never went to college. I just kind of made my way, as I said, dropping out of high school. So I don't want to go back to college and I don't want to send people to college. And I thought, well, I'm not going to ever be good at real estate. There's too much paperwork involved. Um, so it's like being an, a lawyer or an accountant or something. It's just like, oh, God. I mean, there's, there's, you know, to get your license and all that stuff it was just not my thing. But I thought, wow, I could be holding my own classes. What do I know that I could teach other people? And then it occurred to me, thing you've been a stylist for ten years. There's a lot of people out there that would like to do that, but no one will let them in. There's this industry that's very guarded. People are very territorial about their knowledge, their relationships, connections. It's not a very inviting industry. I mean, most of Hollywood is not very inviting. You have to know someone to kind of get in and all that. And so I had this idea that I could do a fashion school that was short and inexpensive and could put people to work immediately because I had the relationships in place after 10 years that I could train students and get them jobs right away. So I thought of the name School of Style. It's kind of like the, I think there's a Jack Black movie called School of Rock or something, right? And I was like, I don't know, I just popped in my head school of style. And I was like, that's a good name. And got the URL and the social media handles and whatnot. And um yeah, I had my first class and a friend, um, one of my real estate buddies that was doing um the flipping as I described, he had a house in the Hollywood Hills, a really cool modern house with a great view. And he lent me his house. I set up a class in the dining room and I put ads on Craigslist and set up a one-page website with a PayPal link and you know, I think I got 12 people in my first class and I put together a PowerPoint, a little workbook, and I taught them everything you know about how to be a fashion stylist in Hollywood and and then proceeded to introduce them to people in the industry. And that was, uh, my first class was on November 8th, 2008. And unbeknownst to me, um, until many years later, I discovered this the next day, November 9th, 2008, was the premiere of a reality show called The Rachel Zoe Project, which is the most famous TV show ever about a fashion stylist named Rachel Zoe, who's now probably the most famous stylist in the world, if not one of them. And so there was this influx of young people that wanted to be her and wanted to get in that industry. And there was nowhere for them to turn except a little school called School of Style. So at that point, um, I was still doing styling. And so That was part of my marketing in the beginning was to say, hey, I'm successful. I work with Kanye West, the Foo Fighters, Marilyn Manson, Kim Kardashian. I had like a big roster of artists that I'd worked with and I was able to parlay that into my credibility. Hey, I'm the one that's here in the industry currently working. I've got my finger on the pulse and I'm going to teach you how to do it. And so for a number of years, I ran School of Style and was also still styling up until a few years ago when I realized that I was kind of, you know, had reached my peak as a stylist and wasn't that passionate about it. And so I stopped doing that and continued to run the school. And then lastly, I'd like to say um, one of the major things that enabled School of Style to scale and grow was after the first year, my partner, Lauren Messiah, who started out as a student and then started working for me and eventually became so invaluable that I made her my partner. um, And we still run the school together She's just really a a force of nature when it comes to business and her work ethic. I mean, she just texted me today and she's like, "Hey, have you looked at our bank account? We need to get to work." (laughs) You know, I'm like, "Okay, thank God for Lauren." You know, because she'll kind of like reel me in from the ethers and be like, "Dude, we have a business. Like, this is what we need to do." And made her CEO last year because she's just so great at running it. So, you know, I'm kind of like an ideas man. I'm creative. I. I can't stay interested in anything for too long, so it was really helpful for me to have someone who was a bit more disciplined and had a different skill set It was a bit more um, you know on top of it in terms of logistics and really planning our next move and things like that. So I always like to say like partnerships can be difficult, and I've seen so many of them fail, but if you find someone that you have synergy with where you have complementary Skills that are not the same—it's invaluable. And in our case, we're so different as people and have such a different style of doing business and a different way of thinking that it's been, you know, really good. And I—I I don't know that I would have been as successful with the business or if it even would have lasted if I didn't have someone that was able to see the value in what I was doing. For me, it was just kind of a side project when I started out. And she was like, "Dude, this is a golden idea at a golden time. Let's take it and run with it." And that's what, in fact, we did.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to partnerships, it's about finding the right partner and not just the convenient partner. I mean, it's it's easy to just partner up with your buddy from college or, you know, the person who's sitting next to you at the office. I mean, versus actually deliberately looking at, does this person that I'm potentially going to work with have, like you said, complementary skill sets rather than overlapping skill set. So I couldn't agree with you more. Well I
0: mean that you know that that's a really good point you're making because that has been a really difficult lesson to learn also not just in terms of partnerships but in human resources hiring people. I've made the mistake so many times of hiring the person I like because I want to feel comfortable with someone I'm working with and I want to vibe with them and have the same sense of humor and I just want to be able to be myself around them and it's been a hard lesson to learn. Uh, not to hire people that I like, but to hire people that are in the right seat on the bus and that are good at what they do and that are competent. You know, it's something my partner Laura and I talk about a lot and it's been a lesson that's been, you know, both of us have had to really learn in our own businesses and with school of style is like, you know, it's not, a. I mean, of course you want to be compatible and there has to be a cultural fit. Of course, if you hire an employee and to a lesser degree, a contractor, but It's more about like really vetting someone for their level of competence and integrity and making sure there's equal measures of both of those qualities before you hire someone and not just because they have cute shoes or, you know, they like the same music or something like that. You know, it's like picking friends and people that you might date is a completely different thing than picking someone to form a partnership with or to employ because um, once you get entrenched in those partnerships, especially when it becomes legal, it can be um, detrimental to your venture if you didn't choose wisely.
1: Well, so Luke, I'm curious to ask you, I mean, you've had this long and winding journey in you know your relationship with money and and the success that you've achieved in your business and so in these last few years you know now that you you know have achieved this financial sobriety and you know, you've really taking control of everything, how has that success impacted your ability to give back?
0: Well I think for me because there hasn't yet been such an abundance of resources that I can do, well, maybe I can, and I just don't know I can, but tithing in the, in the classical sense where, you know, I'm giving to charity or something like that, or donating 10% of my resources. And from a more kind of biblical perspective, I guess you could say. Um, and you know, I believe in, in that principle of giving back, but I think for me, it's more, it's about sharing uh, lessons that I've learned and more in the context of, of mentorship where I have friends or, um, people on social media that might follow what I'm doing and been able to share some of the wisdom that I've created and also just our um, wisdom that I've acquired as a result of learning some hard lessons. But it's more in kind of freedom of energy and freedom of time where I can actually have a little bit of breathing room to be there for people and to uh, be of service more in the world and not be put in a position of desperation where everything I do has to have a financial backend for me, like coming a guest on your your podcast or something like that. I mean, there's other things I could be doing with my time today that might have a more direct impact on my bank account. If I sat down like, Ooh, let me add another product to my website or get a new sponsor for my podcast or something like that. But it's that I really um, have arrived at a place where I have enough financial security and I feel confident enough in my ability to not only maintain the lifestyle that I've created, but to increase it and improve it, that now um, there's a little more bandwidth energetically where I can feel like I have the ability to give back and that I do have something valuable to contribute. Whereas when I was still caught up in so much of the years of desperation and struggle and going broke and not being able to pay my bills and having all this debt and those things that I experienced early on in the journey. Um, having worked my way through a lot of that, I think there's just a sense of security where at two in the afternoon on a Wednesday, sure, like let's have a conversation for an hour. And I'm not freaking out because something didn't go my way. You know, I just had a bunch of beautiful wild seafood delivered from Thrive Market and put it in the freezer before we started this conversation. And I'm fed, I'm eating well, I have a great home that I live in, in in Laurel Canyon, and it's comfortable and I I feel good. I'm not terribly materialistic. I do like a certain degree of of comfort, I would say, but it's really more about contribution. And in order for one to get to the point in their life where they really value contribution and have the wherewithal to provide it, you have to have built at least some uh, sustainable lifestyle and revenue for yourself so that you can do that. While being free of anxiety, so I can be on a call like this, not be like, oh my god, I should be doing something that makes money directly. It doesn't it doesn't matter? Like it's fine. It's all going to work out.
1: Now, Luke, I do wish that we had more time on this show to get into your experience as you know, how you describe a human research lab. And so if you could just briefly let my audience know if they do want to learn more about your experiences with biohacking and really optimizing your performance and your well-being, where can people go to learn all about that?
0: Well, you know, I think the, the Lifestylist podcast, which is my show, is a really good place to, well, I don't even say a place to start, but it's its a treasure trove of information. It's been two and a half years now. I'm up to, I don't know, 100 and I forget how many episodes, almost to 200. Yeah, I'm creeping up on 200. And so I'd say about half of them are about spirituality and metaphysics and half of them are about health. But after interviewing, so someone could go and check out the show. You can find it at LukeStory.com or just the Lifestylist podcast on iTunes and or podcast or broadcast, Spotify, et cetera. So you could listen to a number of shows there based on a topic that might pique your interest. But I have to say, after interviewing, say, you know, 100 of the world's top health experts and biohackers and really extrapolating all of that wisdom and knowledge for my own personal life, I think that the most powerful interventions we can have are mostly free. And it's sometimes confusing to people. Because they're so simple, it's like it can't be that simple. But really the root of all human physical disease and suffering is our domestication and the fact that we're so disconnected from the rhythms of nature, water, air, earth, sky, sun, moon, stars. We live in these little boxes that you're sitting in right now, I'm sitting in now. When we get off this call, I'm going to go sit in another box called a car and drive around. I'm going to go walk around another box called, you know, the furniture store that I'm going to this afternoon. I'm going to get back in a box. I'm going to get out of that box, come sit in this box. We are zoo animals. And when you take an animal out of its wild habitat and you put it in a zoo and you feed it zoo food and give it zoo lighting and a zoo building and a zoo environment, it gets sick and it dies. And that's what's happened to the human race. The way out of that is by undomesticating ourselves, which is by getting back into our natural habitat as much as possible and even turning our unnatural habitat, such as this box I'm living in, as natural as we can. And that's by exposing ourselves to extreme temperatures, doing ice baths, doing saunas, replicating nature, getting out in the sun as much as possible Um, during the day, having full spectrum lighting in your home that has the rainbow of colors in it. Then at night, having only amber and red lighting that would be how we were designed through um, evolution to align ourselves with our circadian rhythm, you know? So it's like being away from cell towers, avoiding EMFs, building some knowledge without being too paranoid about electromagnetic fields and the dangers of your cell phone and Wi-Fi and all that stuff. And, um, And really, you know, then eating food that's not been sprayed with poison is pretty simple. And so to me, uh, it's funny because people think that the way that I live and all this biohacking and stuff is extreme, but what I think ex- is extreme is living inside of a box like a zoo animal and then when your body falls apart, you go have parts of it cut off or irradiated or take drugs that have side effects like may cause death <laughs> or suicidal thoughts. You know, To me, that's extreme. So it's all about getting back to nature and that requires a little bit of studying as in terms of... Um, what is it about our unnatural environment that's so detrimental to our health? And what are the, the biggest changes we can make in our our daily um, life habits that can bring us back at least into close alignment with nature?
1: Gosh, that's just such a fascinating perspective and, and way to look at it. And, and it really is true. So thank you for sharing that. Now, I'd like to move into the impact round. So, this is where I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'd like for you to just respond briefly with the first answer that pops into your head. You ready?
0: Ooh, I love it. Yeah, yeah, I love this.
1: So, who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success?
0: You know, I have to say my dad. I didn't really grow up with my dad. You know, he we was divorced parents and so dad was the one that I visited and I lived with my mom, but um I think some of the things he instilled in me as a kid have really served me. And it took me a long, long time to adhere to some of those lessons as an adult. But he always said to me, there's no such word as can't. Because he would tell me, go do this, go do that. I'm like, I can't. Daddy he said, there's no such thing as can't. And he was, he was pretty tough about it. He was a tough teacher in that way. But um, I think I got the entrepreneurial spirit and that thing like you really have a passion for something and you believe in it. And you go at it with everything you've got that you can achieve whatever you want. I think I got that mostly from him.
1: Luke, who has been the most impactful person in feeding your drive to do good and really make an impact?
0: I would probably say the two founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson, because when I got involved in recovery work, I was really able to discover in a visceral sense that Living a life based on self centeredness and selfishness is not only futile, but in the end, um, quite self destructive if you're someone that's so afflicted as I was. And that the real key to not only your survival, but to your ability to thrive and to have a full heart is completely dependent on how much you serve. And not that those two men were, you know, achieved any sort of perfection in that regard, but the idea that. The way to feel fulfilled is by feeling others um, was given to me through that teaching.
1: And Luke, when you're having a bad day or you find yourself in a negative headspace, what do you do to get yourself out of the funk?
0: <laughs> I think that uh, sometimes I pause and I just regroup and I breathe. Getting connected to breath, that's another one of those sort of natural biohacks that is so simple and it's so free that people often miss it, but getting into the breath is... Essential, I was just doing an interview, as I said before we started, and I mean I was very happy. she was a lovely guest. There was nothing wrong per se, but I was looking at the clock and you know I'm kind of managing the conversation and things like that, and I would find myself stopping breathing, and then I would have to conjure nothing you know it's not like if I was having a hard time but it was an example and a reminder to me as I became aware that I wasn't breathing, I would start breathing and getting back in my breath to me in a, in a trying time is a way that I can reconnect to really being present and being back within my body and back into the now because typically if I'm disturbed by something, it's either because I'm regretting something from the past, resentful about something from the past, or I'm living in a sense of anticipation or anxiety or worry about the future, it's almost 100% of the time that my mind is doing some time travel, which is causing an uncomfortable sensation in my body. And bringing myself back into my body with breath is usually the first step into readjusting the way I'm thinking or feeling about something.
1: Luke, what book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's funny. I you know, just moved into this house and I have this bookshelf just there's not even enough room on this DM, what is it? One, two, four shelves of this giant bookshelf and uh I'm I run out of space. You know, I'm I, I used to be an avid reader. Now I'm more of an avid um audible listener, I guess you could say. Like someone would recommend a book. I'm like, cool, is it non audible? Then I'll I'll air quote read it. You know, it depends on on the subject and it also depends on where I am in life and I get this question a lot when I do interviews and stuff, and I always say the same book, which is David Hawkins. Um, it's called uh, "The Pathway." Of, oh, "Letting Go: The Pathway of Surrender." And I always like fault myself for saying the same damn book. But I think the key to having success that's real—not financial abundance per se, but just inner success, where you feel good about your life and your purpose. Comes from our ability to understand and have some creative will over our thoughts and feelings by identifying that it's not who and what we are and that we can observe them and we can allow them to um, pass through us and we can work with the phenomenon of thought and feeling. And that book, I think, is one that I recommend so much because it really helps us to face the things that so many of us destructively spend our time avoiding, you know, whether that be Netflix or your phone or eating sugar, or smoking cigarettes, or any of the kind of habitual things that we find ourselves doing in order to stop feeling. And the purpose of that book is to really teach us how to surrender into feeling, even when the feelings are uncomfortable and negative, and that that's the fastest way through them. It's like the concept that surrender is saying the fastest way around something is by going through it. It's like walking right into the storm, like a bison are really fascinating in this way. When a storm's coming across the plains of Montana or wherever these bison her- this bison herd is chilling, they don't run away from the storm. They run right through it because they know that it's going to pass over. And that's the fastest way to get through it. And that's a really good sort of analogy for life is to stop running and realize that so many of the things that we're challenged by are in a sense phantoms and that they're not actually as bad as they seem and feel at the time. So that book by David Hawkins is a really simple guide to teach us how to do that. So I'd say if I had to pick one, that would probably be it.
1: Amazing. And I haven't read it. So you've got a new one on my list. The final question of the impact round, Luke, what is the best piece of advice related to happiness that you would give our listeners?
0: Don't believe everything you think.
1: Love that. (laughs) Amazing. Well, Luke, As you know, here on the show, we have what I like to call the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. So this is where I encourage our listeners who want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by my guests. Could you tell us what organization that you'll be nominating?
0: I would like to nominate Wellness for Humanity, which is an organization that helps uh, families that have been uh, devastated by the effects of Lyme disease and it helps them to, uh, if they qualify to acquire a device called the Amp Coil, which is one of the only devices in the world that's been effective in helping people alleviate the symptoms of Lyme disease. One of the reasons that I chose that is they're a great organization. And um, my mom got Lyme disease a number of years ago, and it's been really difficult for her. And it's something that's affecting more and more people. It's one thing if an organization just supports people, that's great. But this organization actually helps people get rid of it. And so, yeah, wellness for humanity. I've also had them on my podcast and are just really sweet, kind, well-intentioned people that are having a, you know, a small impact, but yet a profound impact on a few uh, people that are really in bad shape. So that would be my
1: one. Amazing. Well, Luke, it's interviews like this where I wish I had like a Joe Rogan style podcast where we could just talk for hours because there is so much that I want to dig in with you. But I appreciate you coming on the show. This has been absolutely eye-opening. And for any listeners who want more from Luke, more about his story and everything that he's doing, definitely head over to LukeStory.com. Check out the Lifestylist podcast. It is amazing. Luke, anywhere else that people should go to connect with you?
0: I think that's it. I mean, LukeStory.com is the mothership and almost everything that I'm up to lives over there. I would say if someone wants to uh, interact on social media, Instagram is probably the most um, active for me. And that's at Luke Story, S-T-O-R-E-Y. Of course, you know, I have my feed, but I do a lot of Instagram lives, such as this interview that we're listening to or, or participating in right now. I'm Instagram living that. So I do tons of stories and lives and um, I try to really teach people something about living a good life on my Instagram um, stories and live feeds. So that's a good place to follow me over there as well.
1: Amazing. Well, Luke, thanks so much for doing this with me today. It's been fun.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to how the Do Well and Do Good Challenge works. There are two ways that you can participate. The first is if you are looking to do more to give back, I encourage you to contribute to any of the nonprofits nominated by my guests. Send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co and your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free and that's by voting. See, in the first couple days of each month, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated the month before. That I will then donate a portion of my advertising agency's profits too. It's an awesome way to make your voice heard, and we've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations doing good in the world. So if you'd like to be a part of it, then head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, where you'll find a link to join the group. Once you're inside, I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. We're having so much fun inside there. So head over again to do well and do good co backslash Facebook, and I'll see you on the inside. It means the world to me to earn your time. So thank you so much for listening.